everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Um, so we've been in a sermon series. Uh, it's been called Love God, Love People, The Heart of Discipleship. And what we have been doing is unpacking the greatest commandment in Scripture and how that forms and shapes the life of a disciple and a community of disciples. Uh, and so we're going to be today in Acts, once again, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So you could turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's going to be on the screen. We also have um, some hardback black ones that are in the uh, seat in front of you somewhere in your row. So you can grab one of those as well. If you do grab one of those Bibles, uh, it's going to be on page 911. You can turn there. Uh, also, if you don't own one, we'd love to give you that Bible as a gift to you. If you do, you can just place it back there when you're finished. And so uh, as you're turning, if you're able to, if you could stand with us for the reading of God's word this morning. Acts, uh, oh yeah, also to, um, as I read here, if you're a uh, uh, student, grades 6 through 10th, uh, you can go with Scott and Keila Mayhem back there in the corner uh, for your student ministry class. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? You look good. I want to welcome you here to Providence. If, uh, if it's your first time, uh, as Eric's already said, thank you so much for making us a part of your week. We're excited that you're here. Hopefully you've gotten a, a little bit of a gist of who we are and that that will continue uh, throughout the rest of this morning. Um, so we are in a, uh, we're continuing our series entitled Love God, Love People, The Heart of Discipleship, where we have been talking about our call from God to submit to the Holy Spirit's work of forming us into more passionate lovers of God and lovers of people. And, and in the last three weeks, what we've been focused on is particularly how God accomplishes this work and forms us in the context of gospel-centered community. Uh, we meet here on Sunday mornings, gathered all together, but throughout the week we scatter in home groups. And we talk, we've talked at length about how we hope that in our home groups, they would be missional communities or pockets of community where we can practice the one another's of the New Testament. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, there's around 47 or 51 times in the New Testament that the New Testament writers tell us to blank one another. So love one another, care for one another, uh, show honor to one another. Um, these are all of these uh, consistent calls from the disciples and from Jesus himself as to how the church should interact to each other and then to a watching world. And so we've been talking about in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what are the markers or the identities that we see in the early church that we ought to look to embody? And so we've talked about truth and prayer. We have talked about care and fellowship. And then this morning, I want to talk about uh, hospitality and outreach and outreach, which I think are kind of sister terms, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So before we do, if you'll join me, I would like to pray, and I want to pray particularly for this, that Jesus would stand forth from the text, as he's always faithful to do, faithful to do, and make a case for himself. Amen? 
that, that ultimately I want to be compelling, but that we know deep in our hearts that what you need this morning is not for me to be compelling, but for Jesus to make be compelling for me. Amen? And that he's faithful to do so. So if you will, join me in that as we pray. Father, thank you that we have the gospel and that the gospel is not good advice, but good news. Thank you that the news is the announcement that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done and needed to be done to put sin and death and hell away forever. Thank you that your invitation to us this morning is that we might enter into that joy, that fellowship with you has been purchased. Fellowship with you is what's offered. So for every single man, woman, and child under this roof, we pray that that invitation would be heard loud and clear and that it would be heard loud and clear, namely from you, Jesus, and no man or woman. We long to hear your voice. And Holy Spirit, we pray you'd open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to hear your voice and respond accordingly. We ask all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. So for members here, you know that when we talk about home groups, we're, we're specifically leaning towards the area of our church that we want to engage in these identities, truth and prayer, uh, care and fellowship, hospitality and outreach. And, and Eric mentioned this last week in his sermon. I just wanted to reiterate the definition of home groups that we've come up with, because I think it's helpful when we talk about what home groups are and what we're trying to do when we invite you to a home group. If you're a guest, you've probably been invited, hey, come check out a home group. What are we really saying when we're inviting you to that? This is the definition that we've developed. Home groups are missional communities of disciples that are devoted to the gospel of Jesus, the growth of one another, and the good of their neighbors in the context of everyday life. I'll read that again. Home groups are missional communities, so an outward-facing posture of disciples that are devoted to three things, the gospel of Jesus, the growth of one another, and the good of their neighbor in the context of everyday life, so living life together. This morning, we're going to focus on the two identities, which I think really become one, of hospitality and outreach. The church is and has always been a welcoming community with a missionary posture. We see this most faithfully embodied in Jesus, right? Jesus comes, and when he enters into human history in the Gospels, as he's born in Bethlehem, Jesus is the ultimate cross-cultural missionary from heaven to earth, right? So when we get on a plane and we may go to Africa from the United States, we know that we're coming from a different culture into a new culture. Jesus was the ultimate cross-cultural missionary. He definitely would experience cultural sh culture shock going from heaven itself to earth. And then coming not merely to have a word from God about what we should do, but Jesus embodied the message of God, which is that we would now be welcomed into his kingdom through the life, death, burial, resurrection of his son. This is who Jesus is. And so when we say we want to be hospitable and welcoming and outward facing, it's because we want to model who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen? So three things I want to focus on this morning. I want to describe the call to hospitality. I want to define the context through which we actually work out this kind of hospitality. And then I want to discern the critical ingredient that if you don't have this, you'll fail in all of your efforts. Bless you. In Jesus' name. Seriously. All right. I'm just trying to help people out. All right. So describe the call, define the context, and discern the critical ingredient. Number one. Describe the call. We are called to demonstrate the welcoming posture of God to a watching world. This is the call of God. 
on our lives. I'll say that again. We are called to demonstrate the welcoming posture of God to a watching world. When I look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, there are some details there that I think are really important. Uh, it might be because I'm a foodie, but the first thing I notice is that they break bread twice. Amen. All right? They're eating a lot, and I like that, okay? Um, but I like that for more reasons than just I like potlucks. I like that because meals represent something. They have always represented something greater than just the food that's being eaten. Meals represent sitting around the table. I know we have a culture that more so sits around the TV now, but it, it sits around a table. It's a welcoming into life. There's conversation. There's dialogue. There's enjoyment. There's experience. There's smells. You get to the, all the five senses are involved in the meal. So when it says that the early church ate together, it's not just merely because it was a necessity that they were hungry. It's that they were welcoming each other into their homes and lives. It's a big deal. Also, we see generosity of supernatural proportions here, right? Eric talked a little bit about this last week. They're, they're not just being generous by giving. They're like selling their belongings and then taking the proceeds and giving that. It's like they're going the extra mile for each other here. And I think that maybe the most important Thing to mention is that these are not just friends of theirs, but complete strangers. Now, let's get into that a little bit. So when I read the Bible, I try to not just read it for exactly what is being said, but ask God to help me to think through the implications of the context. So when I read Acts 2, 42 through 47, it's saying some really like staggering things, but then when you think about the context, it gets even more staggering. Check this out. If 3,000 people are meeting in homes... Can you imagine the kind of home openers they had? Think about that for a second. Like when we decide we want to do home groups, one of the first things you think, where are you going to meet? So if you're a home group leader, can you open your home or is your home available? If not, who's going to open the house? Could you imagine 3,000 people now have home groups? Who coordinates that? Like is there PCO, you know? I mean, what's going on with the home openers? All right, how about this? In a Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago, before modern medicine, could you imagine the amount of kids Anybody else? Right? I mean, you guys are in our home groups at Providence. We have tons of children, and they're a great delight, and they're a holy terror all at once. Right? We, we think in our minds, that, like, we need a healthy, like, one-to-one -one ratio, at least, of sane adults and children. Right? In our home groups. But th there's no way. Like, some commentators even say that when it says 3,000 came to know the Lord, that could have just been men, which would mean that there would be how many more women and then it, children, right? Like there was no uh, population control medically here, right? That's insane. Someone's sheetrock's getting destroyed, right? That's going to happen. Bloody nose, bloody lip, fight. This is happening on, on the reg, right, with these kids. How about this one? How about the potluck dinners? Could you imagine the amount of food? Like who's cooking that amount of spaghetti? I need to know. It's important for me to know how that's getting worked out. Or like, how about they don't have running water, so who's going to the well? And like, how strong is that guy to, to get water for this amount of people, right? And, and I can go on. I, I mean, I can continue. Like, who's, who's cooking? Who's cleaning? Um, who's, who's coordinating the meal train when the babies come? Because you know there's babies every week, right? Like, who's coordinating that meal train sesh? These are the details I'm wondering, and here's maybe the most shocking one to me, is you have 12 guys who were, 
not exactly the most proven leaders and disciples of Jesus, right? They just ran at the cross. They were terrified. Peter denied Jesus three times like a few weeks ago. Those are your only leaders for these home groups because everybody else is a baby Christian. And they're all trying to... Now, what we know, because the Bible tells us, and that Jesus warned them about this, this is why Jesus said, wait into the upper room until the Holy Spirit comes, because if you try to do this right now, it's going to be a train wreck. You need me, right? So we know the Holy Spirit empowered them to do this, but I'm just thinking through the supernatural implications of a community like this. It's insane. And then, this is probably the most jarring of all. Acts chapter 2, verse 8 through 11 gives us context to who we're talking about here. These aren't just a bunch of people who maybe went to school together. Check this out, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These are the people that were saved. So what does that mean? They're not only opening their homes, selling their belongings, meeting needs, and going out of their way to honor one another to their friends. They're doing it with complete strangers and maybe even cultural enemies. That's insane, right? People they've never met, or if they have met them or met them on the street prior to conversion, they might have gone to blows, right? That's what's going on here. And when we read this, sometimes we can pass over that and say, wow, what a supernatural component that had to be involved in order for God to build this kind of community. And what we're saying is that this was not just something that was meant to happen after the day of Pentecost, but it was how the church of the living God was meant to be defined from then on. That we would be a place, we would be a people that would display and demonstrate and declare God's glory in the way that we loved each other and in our outward-facing posture to complete strangers. That we'd be a people that welcomed you whether we felt like you deserved it or not. That's important. So, how does this type of community form? Like, how do people humble themselves in this way? How do they serve in this way? How do they die to themselves in this way? Morgan and I just got back uh, from our yearly vacation we take with her family in Cabo, I know we're really suffering for the name. And uh, anyway, we went to this restaurant called Toro. And this restaurant is, it's world-renowned. There's like 40 or so concepts by this owner, or he was a chef, but now he owns these restaurants. His name is Richard Sandoval, and he's awards all over the place. He's just well-known for when you go, you're, you're going to be blown away, right? So we come in kind of skeptical, and uh, we're like, okay, like, you know, we've, we've eaten at, you know, nice places before. We'll see how nice this one is, right? So you sit down, and... Um, you're meted by a kind hostess. They sit, they seat you, and um, first thing I do is they bring you this iPad with wine list with food pairings. So you're like, oh, okay, you know, it's pretty nice. You know, you get to eat this and then have this wine, and it'll taste this way. You're like, okay, it's pretty classy. I like it. Uh, Morgan just does not do any of that, so she's just like, can I have macaroni and cheese and a water? Um, I'm just kidding, not the macaroni and cheese, but. Uh, and then, you know, you usually have maybe two waiters. You have like a, a, wait, a wait staff and then a helper right at your table when you go out to eat. Well, they have six waiters that waited on us for six adults and a child. Like, okay, this is kind of serious, you know. Like, I, I, my water was never empty. Like, I, I, I'd sip it and then, whoosh, you know, like, whoa, quickly, right? I get up from the table and I went to go use the restroom and I came back. And I kid you not, my napkin is folded into like a piece of origami. 
at my table. I'm like, well, there's like a small dove, you know, that had been folded by my napkin. I'm like, this is incredible. I sit down and I'm about to talk about it. The guy grabs my napkin, lays it on my lap for me. I'm like, wow, you know, this is awesome. Um, and then here comes the food. So I, I got, uh, I, I got, I got some soup. Well, before they bring my food, guess what they do? And parents, you're going to appreciate this. They bring my toddler his food. That's good for everyone, right? Thank you. Thank you for thinking of all of us, all right? And not just us, but every patron in the restaurant. You've just given us all a gift, right? But they bring me my, my tortilla soup, and it's all of, it's got like the, the tortilla chips and all the ingredients of the tortilla soup just sitting in there with like little cheese, avocado. And I'm like, what is this? I look over, and they have like a cocktail shaker, and he begins to pour the soup over it in front of me. I'm like, whoa! Like the presentation, I appreciate this, right? Um. I start to eat, it's just absolutely delicious. The food's great, it's going. And, and it's like the waiters knew through osmosis, like what you wanted before you asked for it. You know, another fork, another, here's this, want another drink, you want another fill in the blank, uh, you know, non-alcoholic beverage, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and uh, it's like they knew before you even asked. And so finally at the end, I'm just like, I gotta look up this guy's website, this guy's the real deal, all right? I, I have to know, so I look him up, and you guys can do this later if you want to. His name's Richard Sandoval. So I go, I click on it on Google, and right when I click on the website, there's his logo, and it's just his name, and it just says in all caps, hospitality. Which if you're in the hospitality industry, then you know, you know, hotel, all these things. But th this is what he decided to be branded as, is that he was going to be the best at hospitality. He was going to be the best at, you, at making sure that you knew you were welcome and that you were, and you were honored and you were taken care of at his restaurants. And as far as our experience was concerned, he nailed it, Right? So what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the originator of hospitality, that our God, this is a part of his identity, and we're called to reflect that? Well, I think a few things. Number one, I think hospitality is the golden rule of Jesus played out times infinity and then extended to eternity. So when you read in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Hospitality is the outworking of this times a thousand, right? And here's why I say times a thousand. Because hospitality is not just a ceasefire or a conditional respect. I want to do this to you because you do it for me. No, hospitality is that I'm going to care for you in this way, go out of my way to roll the red carpet and honor you, even though I don't know if you deserve it or not. See, hospitality is that you show others honor, you show them extravagant love, you show them superior care, and you do so whether or not you know them, number one, and whether or not you know what they've done to deserve it. It's interesting. And hospitality and outreach are sister terms, in my opinion, because if you actually look at the Greek behind hospitality, it, a, lot of, a lot of different things, but it mostly means love for strangers. That's what the word actually means. Now, I don't think this means that we can't be hospitable to one another, but what I do think this means is the church can't be the church if we don't have an outward-facing posture. We can't be the church if we don't care for those that are not yet a part of what we've experienced. Amen? And this is what it means to be hospitable. So what I, I try to do is say, okay, how can we develop a, a definition for hospitality that we can really all grab onto? So I, I, I wrote this one down. I hope it's helpful to you. Hospitality is using the resources that God gave you to demonstrate to others the love that God's gave you, given you. Let me say that again. Hospitality is using all the resources God gives to display to others the love that God gives. 
time, talents, treasures, everything God's given you, you take that and say, I want to leverage this in such a way that other people would know that our God loves like this. That's what hospitality is all about. Examples of hospitality might be when members of our church opened up their home to both fellow members and even complete strangers after Hurricane Harvey. That's, a, that's an exercise of hospitality. You don't know what their lives are like. You just know who God has called you to be in light of that. Or uh, last week we had uh, one of our members open up their home to a complete stranger who was a pastor from another town who called me and asked if we had any home openers. And one of our members in this church just opened up their house and said, hey, let him come stay with us. Doesn't know the guy, doesn't know who he is. Of course they can stay with us because they have open hands about their home and their belonging. As God's people, we're meant to be a constant reminder to the world that the Lord's arms are open to them always. That's who we are. This is what it means to be hospitable, or if you want to use the term outreach, right? Now, what's the context there which we're supposed to walk this out? Number two, hospitality is practiced best together and in the context of everyday life. I'll read that again. Hospitality is practiced best together and in the context of everyday life. As I was preparing this sermon, I started trying to think, what are the things that most often keep us from walking in this kind of hospitality? Like, what, what hinders us from this, right? And so I wrote a few things down, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring gospel truth to each of these, but, but I really believe there's something beneath all these, so I'm giving you that fair warning ahead of time. But, but I do want to talk a little bit about these. Number one, I think that we struggle with hospitality in some ways because we could struggle with fear, right? So let me just name a few things. If I open my life in this way, I could be hurt or taken advantage of. Anybody ever thought that? Right? That's a legitimate fear, right? If I'm, if I'm this way to other people, not everybody's like that in this world, Court. So you could talk all you want about that, but that's not how our world works. It's a legitimate fear. Or if I'm always outwardly facing, is anybody going to take care of me? So if I'm always blessing others, if I'm always pouring out, who's pouring in to me, right? Anybody ever experienced that? How about this one? What if I try to love on someone and they just reject me, right? All our residual high school fears come up. What if I try to love on someone on a Sunday morning that I don't know and they think I'm weird? right? We're fearful of that. I want to say this. In no way do I believe that the Bible advocates for ignorant or flippant decision-making, and I don't believe that we uh, ought to put ourselves in grave danger without serious and prayerful consideration of the cost, okay? Uh, example would be, ladies, after this sermon, I don't want you tomorrow to pick up a hitchhiker in the name of hospitality, okay, when you're alone. I just, I don't want you to do that, okay? All the husbands say amen. But I do believe this. If we cave to all of our fears, we can't possibly fulfill the call of God. Like, we have to believe at some level that the risk is worth the reward for us. And, and, and check this out, Christians. Finally, we can be greater risk takers because what kind of risk is it for us since we serve a sovereign God? We serve an awesome God who controls all things. Therefore, the, the real sharp edge of risk is blunted for us, isn't it? Like, I'm not saying that we act stupidly, we operate in wisdom, but can we go a little further than our non-Christian friends to sacrifice for others? I think we can. Why? Because our God is with us. This is what Matthew tells us in chapter 28. Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission, he always follows that up with, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why would Jesus say that after the Great Commission? Because he knows, unless you're confident that he's with you, well, I'll say this, 
You shouldn't be confident in yourself without him. You shouldn't. You should feel pretty sketch about your own abilities. But if God's with us, right? So we should be risk takers at some level. Okay, here's another one. Maybe you're exhausted, anxious, overwhelmed. And so you're like, man, if I'm hospitable, I just, I don't have the energy, I don't have the margin, I don't have the emotional capacity to bring people into my life in this way. Can't do it. And I want to say this, like the Bible does give us a mandate to rest and be renewed by God in order to address these real issues. Like I, I, I think it's important to say that. But I also think that oftentimes we mistake the root of our exhaustion to be our exertion in Christian-related duties, but in actuality, we're exhausted for completely separate reasons. I think many of us experience tiredness, anxiety, and being overwhelmed because our culture creates an inner busyness and an inner dialogue. Do I need to switch this mic back there? Hello? Am I still good? I can keep going? Okay. I just feel like there's like a, a constant. See, so y'all hear that, or is that just me? I just want to make sure I'm not the rapture's not about to happen. I'm going to be taken, all right? <laughs> or you'll be taken, and I preach to no one. That'd be depressing. <laughs> Left behind. Okay. Is it possible that we got this internal dialogue that's happening inside of us, whether it be through social media, right? Comparison. Anybody? Like, you get on Facebook, and therefore you see other people's lives, and you start comparing yourself to them. And am I successful enough? Am I a good enough mom? Am I doing enough in this? And you see their highlight reels. And so there's this internal dialogue going on with guilt or shame or frustration or disappointment or being disgruntled. And so now you get this internal busyness of thought. And, and over and over again, you're working this through, or you just think that you've been relationally engaged when you get off of it, but you haven't actually talked to anyone. But you're tired, right? You're exhausted. Or how about this one? Maybe it's not social media at all, all right? Maybe that one's not true, although I know that it is. Uh, how about this one? Just the internal dialogue that you have with yourself about who you are and what you're called to do about your fears, about your failures, about your limits, about your losses. You know, and, and you start to try to grapple with those alone, and it starts to wear and deplete your energy. I was talking to a coach of mine, and he, he used the example of it's, it's like apps on your iPhone that you're not actually using, but they're like in the background. It still depletes your battery even though you're not using it. You guys know what I'm talking about? And that becomes these situations, circumstances, thoughts, and fears in the back of your mind. So you become tired about something that you haven't ever really engaged with. It's just in the back of your mind constantly running. And this anxiety begins to overwhelm you. Because here's the truth. We know that there are, whether it be your own internal dialogue or the enemy speaking to you, there are sermons that are preached to you all the time. It's just a matter of who and which sermons you're listening to. And are they bringing you life or are they creating more tiredness and death? My encouragement here is that oftentimes whenever we feel like, man, I, I don't have the margin to be hospitable, the truth is the margin that you feel like is being cramped is not being cramped by the, call, the commands of God. It's being cramped because our culture has offered a lie and we've received it wholesale. This is where I ought to spend my time. This is what I ought to be doing. This is, we begin to compare ourselves with everything but Jesus Christ himself and we begin to try to wire our lives in such a way that's culturally acceptable versus believing what Jesus says, which is this. I tell you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's what Jesus said. He says, I call you to keep my commandments and they wouldn't be a burden. And I'm telling you this because I want you to have joy and I want your joy to be full. 
And we think there's no way I can have full joy if I live my life in service to God and others. But I believe, friends, that that's a lie. And we've bought into that. How about this one, just personal preference? I just want to do other stuff. <laughs> that's very simple, right? Uh, how about this one? I, I have a hard job. I deserve to do other stuff. So, like, I don't want to talk to anybody. Maybe you're an introvert in the room, and so you're like, I just don't talk to people because I don't like people. All right? That, that's, th- I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's legitimate. I'm just saying that's probably sometimes what many of us think. I want to say this. When we start thinking about what we deserve, just a word of caution. The Christian is deeply connected with what they deserve, but it only brings them joy because they didn't receive what they deserved, not because they want to receive what they deserve. Let me explain. The Christian should know at the baseline of their existence that what they deserved was alienation from God. What they received was the welcome of God in Jesus Christ. And so when you think of your rights, you think of what Jesus laid down in order for you to gain these new rights. Not what you want to shirk and stiff arm in order to embrace. Does this make sense? If you're going to be in touch with what you deserve, be in touch with it in such a way that motivates you to love others because that's what Jesus did for you. Okay, but all these questions, all these issues, all these, I think there's something truly at the bottom of why we're, we're really struggle with hospitality that we should try to aim at uh, because I think it'll solve some of these others. We struggle most with the way of life, this way of life because we've wrongly compartmentalized the Christian life to certain events, times, days, and even certain people. We say we can be hospitable and then we go to our calendars to say, like, where can I fit hospitality in? And that's when we start getting overwhelmed, right? So you start saying, like, be outwardly postured. And for those of you who are type A, you're like, I got to have an outwardly postured day. When can I do that? Right? Or you're like, I need to care for my neighbors. You're like, where is care for my neighbor day at in my schedule? I have limited energy and time. I got to figure this out. But hospitality, remember this, is an identity to be embraced. It's not an event to be scheduled. There's a diagram that, uh, from Total Church. Um, it's really helpful, I thought. Uh, pretty rudimentary, but I like it. This is a terrible podcast, by the way. Okay, so there's a guy here, and, he, and he, he's, look, he's, he's juggling all these different things, right? This represents our life, oftentimes, in our faulty dispositions toward Christian theology. So he's got his schedule. He's got, like, his relationship with his boss over here. He's got, like, you know, that, that tea time that you set up. And I mean T-E-A, not T-E-E, although you could have a T-E-E time. Um, over here, right? And, like, you're going to have coffee with this person or whatever. And then you got over here, like, your, your smartphone. And then over here you got uh, your tablet or your, um, or, or your notebook. And then notice on the top, that's church. So you're trying to juggle all these. So even right now as I'm preaching, you're, you're, this is what's happening to many of us in our mind. We're juggling through, like, how do I make time for all this stuff, right? But what we have in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, and what I'm making the case is the Christian life is over here to the right. It's who you are, a church person and community, a Christian. This is your identity. It's already woven into the fabric of your heart upon conversion, and you're called to cultivate what Jesus has already done, right? And then you have all these other things that you're engaging with the new heart and new desires that Christ gives. 
So now it's not, when am I going to have hospitality day? It's, I want to be hospitable in relations with my boss. I want to be hospitable with my time and my calendar. I want to be hospitable when I'm on an airplane traveling. I want to be hospitable when I'm working in my house or for others. This is the way in which we engage every day of life, not just certain compartments. Does this make sense? And I think we got to fight against some, some culture here because we, we have the blessing to be able to be in this, this building right now and gather and so what that does, though, sometimes is it allows us to say, this is my narrow church living, not I am the church. I am a Christian called to live on mission with Jesus, and this is when I gather with the saints. We've, we've been very strategic about what, the way we try to name things, even at Providence, that right now you're at gathering, you're not at church. Because you are the church, and the church is gathered. Does this make sense? And this should help us to see how do we engage then in our everyday lives in such a way that we don't have to feel like we're juggling time, but we engage all of our time this way. Okay, here's some applications. So for those of you who are like, that sounds good, good theory, give me boots on the ground. I got you, okay? Here's some activities for consideration. You get home this afternoon. If you got kids, try to get the nap to happen. If you can't get the nap to happen, there are medicine. I'm kidding. See me later. Okay. <laughs> Create a list of resources tonight. Gifts, talents, time, treasures, belongings, etc. that God has given you and ask together with your spouse and maybe even with your kids for God to reveal to you how you could leverage those for the good of those that are your neighbors. Just ask God. See, here's the interesting thing is that many of us, we hear a sermon like this, like, yes, I want to be hospitable. And we immediately start making plans and we don't ask Jesus for what he's actually calling you to do. So what you find yourself doing is with your own strength doing things you were never called to do, and then you wonder why you're frustrated about it. Well, he never asked you to do that. You know why? Because many of us, we want the kingdom, we don't want a king. Like We want to live in the kingdom, but we don't want to go to the king to see what he wants us to do, because the king gets to tell you what part you play in the kingdom. And many times we want to play a different part in the kingdom than he's called us to play, and we try to do that on our own strength, and we're frustrated perpetually. So how about this one? Discuss at dinner this evening with your whole family. Check this out. New people God has brought into your life in the last calendar year. I'm not saying the ones that you even sought out. Because here's what I can promise you. You met someone new this year. You met someone new this year you didn't intend to meet new this year. And guess what the Bible says? That God prepares the good works beforehand that you would walk in them. He not only knew, but was intricately involved in weaving your life in such a way that you'd meet that person. And oftentimes we call them coincidence. I call it providence. So talk to your family about it. Sometimes your kids will even know things that you forgot about. Like, remember when I was throwing that tantrum? Yeah, that was when we met this person. You're like, all right, I don't want to be hospitable there. How about this one? Next time you see your neighbor, talk to them. I wrote this one down not to be uh, condemning, but because yesterday I was washing my car I was in my truck with my son outside, and so I had the hose, and if you're a dad, you've done this. I, I had my hose, and I just spray the car, spray Jonas, and spray the car, spray Jonas. You know, he loves it, right? And so he's just running around shirtless, belly hanging, and my neighbor walks out because their dog had gotten out, and the dog's going over there with Jonas, and Jonas, of course, is totally not self-aware, doesn't know if the dog's friendly or not. He just tries to go and hug it and kiss it. And so the, the, the neighbor goes over there and is like, come over here, dog, and I'm just like off in my own little world, not even focused on anything. I'm thinking about something didn't say a word, and then Jonas with his belly hanging, he goes, hi. And at first I'm like, I almost wanted to say, like, leave them alone. And then I thought, why is it my son knows to say hi, and I don't even just say hi. So 
Here's an assignment. Say hi to your neighbors, maybe. Or if you're going out and you're going to take your trash can in, pull your neighbor's trash can in. How about this one? Reach out to a person you don't know at Sunday gathering to meet them, shake their hand, and tell them that you're glad they're here. I know that we all love the idea that we have a connect team to do that, but can I tell you something? That's complete bunk. You're the connect team. If you're a Christian in the room, you're a connect team. If you're a non-believer in the room, hey, we're glad you're here. And I hope someone has already done this for you. But if you're a Christian in the room and you're like, well, that's what connect agents do. Eh, wrong. You are a connect agent. Well, I'm not really a people person. You have to overcome, all right? I know it's tough. This is what Paul said in Hebrews. You haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. Overcome and say hi. It's hard. I know it's tough. Real hard knock life here in the States to be a Christian. Just say hello and I'm glad you're here. How about this one? Keep an eye for people sitting alone or look lost without a place to go. Not just here, but in your life. You ever been somewhere where you see somebody that's sitting alone? Another one I wrote down was noticing the body language and the, and the faces of servers, barista, and checkout agents. One of our elders, Butch Holmes, is fantastic at this. We sit down and we're having our conversation or whatever at dinner, and he, you never notice that he's not listening to you or whatever, but he'll just stop right in the middle of whatever you're saying, be like, excuse me, we're going to pray for our meal. I've noticed that you seem a little sad. Can we pray for you about something? Just like right in the middle. Now, I always get kind of tense in those moments because I never know what's going to happen, all right? That's my own anxieties coming out. I'm like, oh, gosh, why would he do it? Why do you have to do it, you know? <laughs> never, ever has anyone said, no, don't pray for me. Never. He's done it with me dozens of times. And it's because he's keen to recognize just body language of people. And, and check this out. I love what he said. We're already going to pray. This is who you are, Christian. You're not doing anything that you aren't already going to do. So this is just now having an outward-facing posture. And rather than praying holy huddle, we pray and extend the welcome of God to everyone that's in our presence. Offer prayer to a coworker when you notice they're going through a tough time. Call a new member of your home group when you're on the Houstonian commute back home that we all have, right? You know what I'm talking about. The AC is cranked at unnatural levels, and you're headed home. And you're just like, when you're in traffic, it's like kind of on and off your AC, you know? It's like cold, and then it's like kind of tepid, all right? Call a new home group member and just talk with them on the way home. These are just very practical ways that you could take your everyday life and begin to extend hospitality. Check this out. You aren't called to reach out and influence every single person you meet. How do I know that? Because Paul says you are one member of a body with various gifts. The hospitality is best, and in my humble opinion, the only way it works is when we do it together. It's the only way. It's when we trust that God is working through all of the various parts of the body to fulfill his call and commission that the kingdom might come from heaven to earth. This is his thing that he's doing. And you're, you don't have to be so overwhelmed when you remember that you have a whole body. Now, on the other side of that, I want to say this. You don't have to reach out to everyone, but don't let that be your excuse to reach out to no one. Don't let the body be your excuse to say, well, I'm, I'm just introverted. This is how, I, listen, I, I've been saying that a lot. And I want to say, I, I believe and wholeheartedly agree that some of us are just uniquely introverted. Some of you right now are just cringing inside as I'm talking about this. I want to tell you something. God made you that way and he can and will use you still for his glory. And it doesn't mean that you need to be an isolated, individualistic Christian. 
know that right now. That just because you might struggle in that way, you may not be the person that meets with hundreds of people or maybe even tens. But God can and will use you with the greatest commodity that is on the earth right now. And it's not stuff, it's people. People live eternally. Stuff doesn't. So don't think if you're an introvert, you're only in the stuff business. No, you're in the people business too. It just might look different. So very simply, let's be obedient in the small things in what God's already doing. Let's join Jesus in his great work of redemption and not hear the work of redemption and then try to carve out our own part of it. Let's just join what he's already doing. All right, lastly, what's the critical ingredient of hospitality? Like we need to discern, like what is the ingredient of hospitality? If we're going to do this, we have to have this or else it's not going to work. And here's the answer. If we're going to be a hospitable people, number three, we must, I want you to underline that if you write it down, must experience the welcome of God in Jesus Christ. Must. Why do I say that? If you're sitting in here now and you're jotting down notes on how you might be more outwardly facing and yet you have not recently experienced just how much you are loved by God and welcomed into his kingdom, you will struggle greatly to carry forth any habits that won't die in one week, two week, three week, three ones. They will. Why do I say that? Because if you're relying on the hospitality of other people or their care for you to be your primary energy source for being hospitable, look at me right in my eyes that I'll promise you something. People will fail you. Not because they don't love you, but because they're people. I, we have to hear this. People cannot be your primary source for encouragement, love, care. They can be a source because they are meant and called to reflect God's character, his love, his welcoming. But they can't be the source. This is why one of the most important things, there was a professor whenever I went to uh, college, a professor who would make us stand up, a Christian professor, would make us stand up on our tables and say, I am not the Christ, which is what... Uh, John the Baptist said, right? It's really odd, right? You stand up on your desk in your preaching class or whatever. Say, I am not the Christ, very loudly. So in front of the whole class, say, I am not the Christ. And then you'd sit down. Next person, stand up. I am not the Christ. I always thought if a non-believer walks in, my gosh. <laughs> all we need are like communion cups. They say, okay, they're getting out of here. This is a, a Jim Jones all over again. Let's wrap this up, right? <laughs> but I am not the Christ. That's what we say. Why was that such an important exercise? Every morning we need to be reminded we are not Jesus. And check this out. And neither are any of your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are reflections. They are like the moon to the sun at their best day. And oftentimes it's a crescent moon, my friends. There are very, very few full moon days for me. If you've experienced one, bless you. But I'm trying, I'm striving, I'm, but, but I promise you, I will let you down. And here's the thing, if we live like the world in our approach to hospitality, then we are just gonna, only going to be as hospitable as others are to us. And you know what will happen next? Discouragement, despair, frustration, offense, and in the end, alienation, isolation. Because people can't be your bread and butter. They can't be your source Jesus is your source. Jesus is who and what we need most. In the character and nature of our God, there are welcoming arms open to us. And if we don't find our place at that table with great humility, 
we will struggle to be hospitable to others. Listen to this. God's nature is to be a welcomer. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. This is what he, before he wrote the Ten Commandments to Israel, listen to what he says to them. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. God, before he commands them to do anything, wants to remind them, you were aliens and strangers. You were wanderers in the desert. You did not have a home, and I'm going to give you a home. You had no possessions, and I'm going to give you possessions. You were slaves, and I made you free. I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. This is why later when you go through the Deuteronomy and some of the Levitical law, God constantly says, when the sojourner passes through Israel, care for them, love them. When the stranger walks past your door, let them enter your house. Why? Because remember, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And I, the Lord your God, I made a home for you. Jesus later on in Mark chapter number 2, verse 15 Jesus didn't come and change who God was or give us a new picture of who God was. Jesus came and gave us the full, clear picture of who God was. He sits down at the dinner table and listen to what happens. He reclines at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. But the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They say, why does he associate with these people at the dinner table? Watch what Jesus says. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, this is such a tongue-in-cheek comment, right? Because what, you, what the Pharisees might think he's saying is, hey, why don't you come sit with them too? Because even sinners need God. And the Pharisees could say, oh, I'll join you, Jesus. We'll, we'll condescend to their level because we're good people. No, 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 no. Jesus said this tongue-in-cheek because he looked at the Pharisees and he wanted them to know, if you think you're any different than them, you have wrongly understood your place in the world and who I am. If the Pharisees thought that they were on a different level than the tax collectors and sinners, they didn't understand the gospel or the character of God. They didn't understand who God is, his holiness, and our need. See, if we hear a message on hospitality and all we think is, oh, I need more non-believing friends. No, friends, you need to be reminded that God welcomed you to the table when you didn't deserve a place. And you didn't wake up this morning deserving now because you've been sitting there for a little while. Like you didn't deserve your new place of honor at the right hand of Jesus based on your recent righteous acts, because what the Bible tells us is that our best attempts at righteous acts still don't add up. That what happened in the gospel is that Jesus condescended from heaven to earth to Pharisee and tax collector alike, and that it doesn't matter sitting in this room what your socioeconomic status is or your background, your sins or your past, that all of us were in need. And Jesus said, come to the table. Not only come to the table, but... One of my favorite stories of the Old Testament is a a story of a a man named Mephibosheth. Some of you might be familiar with this. King David had been terrorized and chased all around uh, the Israeli wilderness by a man named Saul, who was the former king. Saul hated David because David had been anointed by Samuel to, to succeed him as king. So Saul tried to kill him. And all of David's young life, all the way until he's 30, although he had been anointed king at 16, 
he had to run from Saul and hide in the dens and caves of the earth, right? And then once David succeeds and finally God culminates the good that he had promised David and David becomes the king, Saul and Saul's sons, his immediate sons, were killed. And they had found that most of Saul's descendants had basically been wiped off the face of the earth. Now, here's the thing. In ancient times, this was very common. If a king succeeded the throne, the former king, the current king would take the former king's whole family, particularly his sons, and he'd have them all killed. Why? He didn't want any dissension. He wanted to make sure that there was no one from that kingly line that would ever try to take my throne. But King David looked to his servants when he became king, and he said, is there anyone in Saul's line that I can show kindness to. And they said, there's one. His name is Mephibosheth. He's the only son left. But there's a unique ailment with Mephibosheth. He has lame feet. He can't walk. So David says, go to Mephibosheth and carry him to my table. He'll dine with me. And Mephibosheth comes, and I imagine Mephibosheth thinks this is it. He's going to end me. And David says, no, you will always stay in the king's house, and this land I allot to you and your descendants forever and ever. He showed kindness to the house of Saul. Now, you might think, man, if you, if you read that, you go, man, I want to be like David. You're missing the point. David did unknowingly, but what we know now with the grace of living on this side of the cross, David did imperfectly what Jesus has done for us perfectly. A great king betrayed by all of us sitting here. None of us, great or small, have not found ourselves on the treasonous side of history with the God of the universe. And the king, when having the opportunity to end us, he said, no, I'm going to make room at my table for them. And when we sat down at his table, leery, worried about what he might say or do to us, when Jesus entered into the human history, you can imagine how scary that might be for the Son of God to come down in all of our unholiness. What would he say to us? His word to us was, Grace and truth, right? Come sit at my table. Not only are you going to be at my table, but you'll be eternally at my table. Not only here, but I have a place I'm preparing for you. And this place that I prepare for you, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, he says. Jesus told a parable like this in the Gospels. He says, to my great banquet, send them out to the highways and to the hedges and bid anyone who would hear to come in because my banquet table will be full. See, the parable was that Jesus had sent the invitation. This welcoming God had sent the invitation, right, to the dinner. And everybody had said, hey, excuse me, I can't be there. Excuse me, I can't be there. Sorry, I have, I have things to do. I'm really busy. And so the, the servant kept coming back and saying, no one can come. And so the master of the banquet said, go everywhere to anyone and tell them to come because my table will be full. This is our God. This is the kind of hospitable God that we have is that he goes to anyone and everywhere and he has the yes. news of the kingdom that there's place at the table of God for you this morning. And that, check this out, you don't deserve it. I love it when people tell me, you don't know what I've done or where I've been through. I don't, there's no way that God could love me. I'm like, I know. Sometimes people say that because what they want you to say is, oh, you can't be that bad. That's not what I say. I'm saying, you're worse than you think. That's how I know myself. Some of you, you think, oh, Court's a great guy. I promise you, I'm worse off than even I know. But God, rich in mercy, look down upon me in my state. And just like Mephibosheth, who feet, he can't make it to the table. I had to be carried, friends. I hope you know that's you too. 
The reason I say this is the critical ingredient to hospitality is because if this morning you think that somehow you walked on your own volition to the king's table and he didn't carry you, you're going to have a hard time carrying other people. You're going to have a hard time because somehow you'll think, well, I carried my burden, why can't they carry yours? You need to be reminded you never carried anything. If you think that you did, I promise you, if you will just pray this prayer with me this morning, God, reveal to me your grace. He will show you that it was not your good deeds, your you know, good parenting, your you know, awesome understanding of the word or theology that brought you to where you are. Your right standing with God is because Jesus Christ did everything that needed to be done and went to a lame person like you and me and carried us all the way to the dinner table. And that's good news. I'll say this. Friends, we're never going to make room at our dinner table for outsiders until God makes room in our hearts. We just can't do it. And I don't say that as a condemning word. I say it as an encouragement. Let's not try to do what we can't do on our own. Let's not try to be a hospitable people until God has done this work in us, in our hearts. Until we've really felt welcomed at the table, we're going to struggle welcoming other people. But when he opens our eyes to our seat, then and only then can we find ourselves with open arms to the world around us. This morning, I want to open the table of the Lord to you. For the believer, I want you to come and experience the welcome of God as we remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Jesus paved the way for us to experience fellowship with God. When you take the bread, remember Jesus' broken body this morning for you. As you take the juice, remember his blood shed for you. And here's what I pray. I pray you experience the embrace of God as you take the table this morning. That that place at the table is for you. If you're not a believer this morning, or maybe you're just not sure, here's what I pray. I want to extend the welcome of God to you uniquely this morning. Communion is not the first step for you, okay? The first step is this. God loves you. God loves you. And if you're not sure right now of God's love for you, I want to be a reaffirming voice, but I want you to hear his voice. God loves you, and the reason I know is because of the cross. And his welcome is extended to you, not based on what you have or have not done, said, or thought, but based upon what Jesus has done, said, and thought. So the invitation to you this morning is very simple. Repent, believe the good news. Very practically, we'll have a prayer of belief. In no way do we think this prayer can save you. What we think is that sometimes we just need some handles, right? I don't know what to say. This can help. Also, we're going to have prayer volunteers on each side of the sanctuary. They would love to pray with you, believer or non-believer. Let us come to God and ask for that which we don't have rather than try to conjure it up on our own. Lastly, and I always forget this, so I just want to be faithful to the gluten-free option that's in the middle. Like, I know that's a legit thing, so there's a gluten-free option in communion in the middle, and then we have communion on the sides. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, is there any table we'd rather be at than yours? God, I know in my heart that there are times of twisted desire that I wish that I were an honored guest at many different things or that I would be honored by others in many different ways or that people would think of me or perceive me in a certain way. But God, there is no greater honor than to be invited to your table. 
thank you. Jesus, thank you that I don't have to earn that invitation because surely I'd be like Mephibosheth. I would be exactly where I was at the start. Thank you for carrying us. Holy Spirit, do in us what we can't do for ourselves as we sing, as we take. Make us to be the people that can demonstrate and declare you're welcome to the world. And God, don't let us try to run and do that this morning without first asking you, what is it you have? What unique place do you have for each of us, Lord? Because we want to do it together, but we want to play our part. And finally, God, for that person that might be wrestling with who you are and what you've done, would you just display yourself in majesty and in love through the people in this room, but Lord, uniquely to them this morning, reveal yourself as a great and glorious King. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.